Ecclesiastes, we don't have the screen up there, so surprise, surprise, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's kind of in the middle of the Bible. All right. Um, chapter 3, actually, Ecclesiastes, okay. Uh, this is a return to the book of Ecclesiastes, because I had previously preached a sermon on the verses at the beginning of this book, this wisdom book. And so today we're going to move on a bit to chapter 3. All right. Father, we thank you this morning that we can come once again and worship you with our voices, our hearts, and Lord, now we want to worship you by looking at your word. And I ask that you would guide me as I preach this word and you would open eyes and hearts and ears and everything for your people and those who are not your people to hear the word this morning to the glory of Christ. Amen. Now this book, Ecclesiastes, is considered by most readers, including many modern evangelicals, to be a bit odd, and it's never quoted in the New Testament. Many people read this, and they describe it as cynical, overly pessimistic, and fatalistic, and on top of that, it seems to contradict itself within the verses of the book itself. It can be something scoffers point to and say, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. But these seeming contradictions, they just provide contrasts about the questions of life and the various answers we settle on, but which will still often leave us scratching our heads. And that is life as we experience it here under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says it. In this book, right away, we get that cynical, fatalistic feeling about where the book is going, since it starts out lamenting that everything appears to be vanity or meaningless. So this book helps to start a conversation. I think that's the modern lingo for a disagreement. Because as believers in Jesus Christ and in the truth of all the Word of God, we know that life is fully meaningful, both in our living to glorify and enjoy God in Jesus Christ, but also knowing all we do is meaningful because we will each give an account of ourselves to God. So an honest unbeliever might perk up when reading this book and say, yes, it starts out how I really feel. Seems like ultimately life is meaning, meaningless, and then reads on in the Bible to confirm, yes, in all honesty, life under the sun without Christ is in fact like that. And so as we go today into chapter 3, the same theme emerges. The world is confusing and contradictory in so many ways, random and seemingly without ultimate purpose, and yet my experience says otherwise. If I'm honest, God does show himself through creation, and that creation is experienced by my daily life. 
He may be dimly seen due to my inborn blindness, but if I'm honest, he is actually screaming at me to believe he is there and is to be feared. Now here in chapter 3 today, the focus is on the issue of time in his creation and God's control over not only time, but as time marches on, <clears throat> that control he has over all things. So we begin with the first eight verses of our 14 for this morning. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Now these verses here that we read have been well known in the secular world. There was even a modern pop song written which basically used these verses verbatim. Turn, 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 it was called. And a big part of what it is pointing to is the unstoppable turning of the hands of the clock every day of our lives. Now these verses here in some ways are repeating the theme which began this book of Ecclesiastes. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. That fits well with what we see in the physical world. Seems like it is a wound-up clock on automatic, which just keeps ticking the same old thing, maybe even seems boring. But these verses here this morning are different because they are not directly about God's structured and orderly physical world, but about the lives of us humans in God's orderly world. And the key word here, of course, is time. Time does not really concern us here about God's physical world. The seasons, they come and they go before you arrive, and they will continue after you depart. Instead, in our verses this morning, time is clearly important to us because this is about our very brief visit here on earth, how we experience life. And the key thing is, do we see it as the random results of an evolutionary world? Do we experience it as the outworking of an erratic 
eccentric creator? Or do we as believers know it is a description of a completely sovereign, perfectly good and holy God who is always with us in a sin-cursed world that's full of both what we embrace with gladness and what we endure with steadfast faith? Ultimately, these eight verses are screaming at the world that there is a God and he is fully in sovereign control, not only over the clock, but all of life. And therefore, we should stand in awe, bow down, fear, and worship him. And so, stage is set for the first of our verses today. A time to be born and a time to die. That appears to be first because it frames everything which comes after since it obviously frames our lives. To the modern evolutionists, those are both totally random. But to believers in the one true holy God, he has set our time, as Paul says, the time and places we should live. And he has our time of departure from this life in firm control, as Jesus tells us, our anxiousness can't add even one hour to our lives. And this is the common theme here today. Ecclesiastes is saying, this is the way the world is and shows God is in control of it, but doesn't really say exactly why it is the way it is. It just is. The writer describes the way things are rather than how we want them to be. So a secular person or even a deist says, yes, that is the way the world is, untidy, confusing, and contradictory much of the time. Maybe I should look further into these books of this Bible. A time to be born and a time to die. That is the frame. And as we consider these eight verses, Let's realize these are not what we call prescriptive, as in we should set these times, like I should go die now, but they are descriptive, and that's the point. They describe the world and confirm our sovereign God rules over all. So just to jump ahead for a second, at the end today, the writer says about man, he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So after starting with the very beginning and very end, birth and death, he pairs it with a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, which is something primarily about life and death, which we as humans have a part in, plant and uproot. Now here, very importantly today, this verse, as with all these eight verses describing so much of life's events, can remind each reader of something different in their life. For one, this verse could be about something as simple as gardening, or for another, about something they see God doing. God can be thought of as one who plants and uproots, like Israel, for example, when Jeremiah says things like this, it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares 
the Lord. And then verse 3 begins, a time to kill and a time to heal. And again, this is not prescriptive. Oh, now is a good time to kill someone. It is descriptive of what happens in the world full of sin. So when people read this, they may think of it referring back to the Old Testament and the cycle of war and death and then redemption, particularly of Israel, God's chosen people. And like all of these in here, it can speak differently to each person's heart since it is God covering much of what humans experience in life one way or another in just these eight verses. So a time to kill sounds like a war, and a time to heal sounds like those who survive. But for others, they might think very differently and recall what Paul said about what sin did to him. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So others who become believers might read and say, sin did deceive me, and through the holy good commandments killed me. So then we might be like Paul. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this leads to the second part of this verse 3 here. A time to heal, drawing near to God in submission, repentance, saying, I remember vividly when I realized sin had killed me. I was dead in my sins, and Christ brought me to life. And the healing began. Killed by sin, healed by Christ. Like Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then even more than that, for your sin-scarred soul, the psalmist speaks of the Lord to his children like this. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And I am certain that for some in this room, maybe many, God's time of healing a broken heart has been their lifeline to persevere. Do we see why these eight verses have always grabbed people's attention for centuries? Since it speaks in so many ways to different kinds of humans about the far too complicated world and life we experience. God has used and will continue to use these to challenge each reader's conscience about the ups and downs of life. To an unbeliever, trying to draw him near to God who has the ultimate answers about their perplexity at life, or to the believer, saying, thankfully, the Lord is in control of these things for my good and his glory. A time to break down and a time to build up. And breaking down and building up, of course, speaks in so many ways it can't even be summarized. For the teenagers out there, it might bring to mind something about all their Sunday work here in this school building. For others, breaking down 
sinful strongholds while encouraging and building up brothers and sisters through love and prayer. We could go on and on. But notice each of these has its creative or good part and each its opposite. Buried in here are the effects of sin. There is a time to be born, to plant, to build up, to heal, but then the time to die, to pluck up, to break down, and to kill. Taken together, it does what Ecclesiastes is supposed to do, particularly for an unbeliever, make them think. Think, these things are inevitable. Why do these bad things happen? I don't have a lot of control over much of it. Is God the writer speaks of good or not? Can I ignore him? Does he really exist and control things? Or is it all random? And then the teacher here goes on to something dear to each of us, our emotions. Actually, many of these everythings, which have their God-appointed time, as we were told at the beginning, are about what goes on inside of us. Verse 4, time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So again, these verses are not saying, later today I must remember to weep, but it's saying these things are what happen in life and reflect, we might say, the breadth of the worst of life to the best. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. As with all of these, the way they are perceived by any particular person can be very far apart. There can be a time to seek my lost pet which ran away down the middle of the main street. That's an inside story. And then have to give up as lost or not give up. There can be a young person seeking the perfect spouse and then realize maybe my definition of perfection is not right or I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Or it can be like the seeker reading Ecclesiastes who is challenged by its message of life being complicated, trying and confusing, yet it remains perfectly ordered day by day in the physical realm. And where is God in all this? They can be that seeker, be searching, but then give up as a lost cause. If God is good, this world could not be like this. If God is real and in control, he would make things better. And since the world has so much bad and evil, then God is not really good and I will not serve or believe in that God. Again, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. The writer sees many people seek and then give up as lost. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. This is definitely one which gets everyone's attention, probably because of what a James says is so true. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And within the context of marriage, for example, helpful and peacemaking conversation, 
can depend on knowing a time to keep silent and the right time to speak. And of course, for example, a time to keep silent would be during a Notre Dame football game at Joe's house. And an excellent time to speak would be after a share your inner life question at home group. This may also remind us God can be silent and God can speak. Anyone who has ever prayed and asked God to move or work or do something knows this, he can be very silent. But he will speak through his word and in his actions. And may I say to you, I've found this to be most helpful. There are many times for us to be silent. And if, big if, we have the word stored up in our hearts and minds, then in that silence he speaks by his word as he brings the word to mind. But it must start with ingraining it in your brain. And then there was the greatest time of silence and then speech. 400 years of silence after the last prophet Micah. Then did God decide to speak? Yes, his son Jesus Christ the Messiah, when the time had fully come, he came. He came to live sinlessly, to die perfectly, to rise gloriously, so then he might seize desperate sinners, bathe them spotlessly in his blood, seal them by his spirit, bring them to the obedience which comes by faith, and deliver them finally into his glorious presence. A time to love and a time to hate. This is one of the two in our text which can seem very unchristian. A time to love and a time to hate, like verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. But again, it's describing life as it is. And it is wonderful, like all the others in here, because it speaks to different people in different ways, but in some way to everyone. A believer, he can be reminded of the love he used to have for worldliness. Like Paul says, the kind of people we once were, among other things, unholy and without self-control, not loving good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But then, like Paul says elsewhere, our love changed by God's mercy upon us because of the great love with which he loved us. So that then he made us alive together with Christ, and in that he saved us. So our time to love sin was done, and then to confirm the truth of that exchange, Paul says, let love be genuine, hate what is evil. But then even Paul must admit that genuine love for good and hatred of evil is not easy even for unbelievers, as he writes. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The thing he hates, which is sin, 
So he must always battle to love the truth and hate sin. A time to love and a time to hate. And of course, every believer is seriously challenged with regard to love and hate because of what Jesus says about our lives. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And here we circle back around again, like Ecclesiastes does, to the one who does not know Christ, even though he may believe in God in a general sense. He does not understand the extent of the love and hate Jesus speaks of. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He might understand the teacher's writings here that life seems vain and meaningless in so many ways, but that extent of love and hate and denial of self to follow Christ, it's too much. So instead, he may just agree with what the teacher writes near the end of our passage for today, that the best thing to do is this, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. And a person says, yes, there is the solution to life, to all the teacher lamented. I'll be a good person and do those things, and that's my life of enjoyment until it ends. But Jesus, he has a very different view of living life, serving Christ, and finding life in that very serving and living. Peter was a bit perplexed himself about what giving up his life for Christ meant. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And then Jesus says, there in the eternal kingdom, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We passed over a few, but here is a time for war and a time for peace. This final one is somewhat like the first birth and death which is obviously not within our control, war and peace. Some other things in our passage, one sees they have a part in choose to do or not do those things. But war and peace? This book, in a later chapter, tells us our fate. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You don't do war by yourself, and the lack of war, the peace, is actually a great mercy from God. And if in your lifetimes you do not personally know a time of war, here again, the believer who is familiar with God's word has read a lot about wars and knows God is ultimately in control for his purposes. To the one who rejects God or 
doesn't really know him, he remains perplexed, not just war, but all these other things which happen as the writer has described the time for each. And so, after that long list and the many things which come to mind for each, he continues on and he writes, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And we have to note this is very similar to how he ended the first portion of this book, the first two chapters, when he wrote, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And back there, he was ending a roundup about the meaningless of life he observed since all his efforts in life would gain him not much if in the end all he's done is like a repetitive vapor which then disappears and he is forgotten. But I think here he's a bit more positive since he's going to speak the truth that God is in control and in that we should trust all those times, those seasons, are under God's sovereign hand. But the teacher here asks, what gain has one from all his efforts as, govern, as God's sovereign hand rules? And so that might call into question God's concern for his toiling creation. And this, of course, is where different kinds of people see things very differently. Our teacher here, believes in just one God who reigns. He accepts the existence of a creator, but not a God who also intimately, constantly interacts with humankind. And so he goes throughout this book. To him, God and his purposes are seen in a fog. Not clear what he's really up to, but he is doing better than the atheist who would read this book, and especially our text for today. The atheist might say, all these things happen in time, those seasons. He is describing life as it is. Don't know why it is, but ending with, what do I gain from all this toil? He's right. What do I gain? Nothing really. So then, I guess I'll have a bumper sticker life. Live, love, and laugh. But none of these are Christians believing in the Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To those others, it's obscured. The truth, God's promise of redemption through Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, the teacher sees the world and wants us to fear God, knowing there is a judgment of some kind, but that's about it. He's not sure how to be prepared for it. So here's the question. Is Ecclesiastes the only place where people are confronted with the confusing world and the truth about life and about death and how to be prepared for it? The New Testament, what is written there, goes a very, very long way toward removing the fog and obscurity, but not all. Because even if you have the New Testament, you read Jesus is speaking in parables. So, for example, after he gives the parable of the four seeds and soils, 
he must explain it to his disciples. And even then, he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see or not perceive and indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. So for those whom God has had mercy on, like his disciples, they do understand Jesus. By his mercy, they have had their eyes opened by Jesus to know him, and only then can they know him as their Savior who died for them. They have believed in him and received him, so when all these things happen in time, in the seasons of their life, in their toiling, they can see God's working them out ultimately for their good and his glory. They know God works out everything in his perfect time, not theirs. And so, Jesus comes at exactly the right time in history as ordained perfectly by God. And then, the first thing Mark records, Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so in God's perfect timing, he brought that good news of salvation through faith in Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. So Paul could plead to be reconciled to God through Christ and stress time is of the essence. It is right now. Paul quotes Isaiah as he makes his plea. For he says, in a, fa in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Like Jesus said to his disciples about himself when his time was near to go to the cross, that they would have the light only a little while longer to walk in it before darkness might overtake them. Then after his resurrection, his disciples wanted to know if, okay, after all of that, is it time now? Time to restore the kingdom? Jesus tells them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Sound familiar? Yes. It's the theme of our text this morning. God has fixed seasons, fixed times here in Ecclesiastes. So one more time, that first verse for this morning, a time to be born and a time to die, that great fear which hangs over mankind, we must accept that times are known to God, not us. So there is urgency to know the truth and that truth, it is Jesus Christ. Then he goes on in verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity in the heart of man. There is a knowledge of eternity deep inside each person. Annihilationists try not to acknowledge it. 
But in that human understanding of eternity, we then want to have full knowledge. We want to figure it all out. That makes us like God. So then no surprises like all that time stuff we read about that God is in control of instead of us. Maybe then we could avoid the bad times. So whether we believe the times are from God or not, we spend a fair amount of time wondering about the past. Why did that happen to me in the present? Why is this happening to me right now in the future? What is going to happen to me next? And so we are always trying to put these two things together, life and truth. The life we live, the times we experience, the world we see, and then we wonder, what is true about this life? All I see and experience, what is its purpose? The atheist says it's random. The deist says, God has created all this, but he seems both good and bad. But the true believer knows, yes, I do see good and bad, but God is only good, so I'll trust in that. So when the teacher goes on here in our text in verse 12, he writes, I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. It's a similar reaction. The atheist says, yes, let's eat and drink and take pleasure in all this because well, that appears to be all there is, the point of life. Meanwhile, the deist, like our teacher, says, yes, God gave all these things, so yes, let's do those things, but perhaps with some temperance due to some kind of future judgment. But to the believer that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, says, yes, this is indeed God's gift to man, and the greatness of that gift comes from knowing it arrives directly from our redeeming, loving, crucified Savior. When Paul is admonishing us to be careful in our freedom of enjoyment, especially around sensitive Christians, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so God has given us time to redeem, to enjoy what he gives us, to live for him. He is good and he is gracious. But then we must note, even in the midst of what the teacher says here, that we should be joyful and do good and eat and drink and take pleasure in our life. He reminds us as long as they live. And there is time rearing its head again, a time to be born and a time to die. Have you noticed that on a grave headstone there is only a small area to inscribe and in what's there? But your time to be born and your time to die. There is no coincidence between that and what's at the beginning of our text. And have you noticed there are two things many people have with them much of their life? Besides putting on their clothes, their keys, and their watch. And both of these are ultimately pointing to
to God. The keys, they always remind us there is plenty of sin in the world. Won't be needing keys in heaven, I don't think. There's no sin, nothing to lock up. And the watch, it's telling us how much of a master time is. It can be strapped to us all day long. Is there an alarm clock or an iPhone by your bedside to move you? Believers, they're going to be very happy in the resurrection when time will no longer be a master in life. But now we always glance at the time. Time is in control. Some may be even glancing at the clock right now to see how much longer the sermon might go on today. Tomorrow is the beginning of a new year, 2018. And isn't it interesting that even though it's just another day, it is a really big deal? The marking of the calendar? Another reminder of time marching on? It's a popular time to make resolutions about the future. So in Psychology Today magazine, they wrote about their understanding of the reason people make New Year's resolutions. Living healthier, better, longer? New Year's resolutions are examples of the universal human desire to have some control over what lies ahead because the future is unsettlingly unknowable. Not knowing what's to come means we don't know what we need to know to keep ourselves safe. To counter that worrisome powerlessness, we do things to take control. It doesn't even matter whether we hold our resolve and make good on our promises. Committing to them, at least for a moment, gives us a feeling of more control over the uncertain days to come. That tells us perfectly the psychology of the secular mind. Exactly what we've seen this morning. God's in control, not us, even though man wants all the control. So time marches on for us. Not for God, who is outside of time, the creator of time itself. Things happen in his timing. And in the verses we went through, the things which happen in time in our life, some are so good we want to savor them. Nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. It is the gift of God, as we read. Time to laugh, to dance, to speak. A time to love and know peace. We do all these things in time as the events of life take us along. But the bad, we want to get behind us. The good, we want to savor. But savor, though we want, the march of time always takes it away. Us older parents, we might glance over a picture of when our child was little and adorable, and a smile always comes. But it's gone. Time goes on. We grow up and one day remember how mom used to do all those big and little things for us. We remember longingly, but it's gone. 
time moves on. One might remember when they were first a Christian and how constantly giddy they were about Jesus. Remember them and long for some of that childlike joy. But it seems different now. Time has gone on. Now it's a deeper kind of love for Christ. Time and trials have watered that faith so the roots are very deep with the love being masterfully matured by our maker as time moves on. So many things could be the old house you grew up in, but time has moved you on. The traditions are not all the same. They change so many wonderful things God has given us. The time of laughing and dancing and loving and enjoying peace. But in many ways, time is a mercy to us as we live our lives here. If we stop what we are doing, because of the gorgeous sunset, its beginning, we all stand in awe and behold it. But if we will notice, even if God were to stop the world, stop time at that moment, we would not sit there forever watching the perpetual sunset. Because like all these times God has given us, they are not God. Especially the ones we think are good, even those are only a tiny reflection of his goodness, his kindness to us, his glory. Because the only one we will never get tired of beholding, the one the march of time will never take away from us, the one we won't have to remember back to longingly is Jesus. He is the only one, God himself, who in the heaven he promises will do away with time and longing and hoping for something better to savor. He is the only one our hearts truly long for, and thankfully he is timeless and eternal. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And he is right. But Ecclesiastes challenges us. What God brings to us in his timing, in seasons of life, it challenges us to do just that, to find our rest in him in this life before its final rest in the resurrection. For the unbeliever, it's often just plain confusion. But for believers, we should know God is with us at all times for our good and his glory. He is sovereign indeed. And so the teacher comes to the last, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. There is the final answer. Time is a mercy to us. God has plans. We can't change them. He sets the timing of events, many which constantly confront and challenge us so that we should stand in awe and fear of him. Many people will not stand in awe, nor fear. Many will say, in my life, I had some good luck or I had some bad luck. 
but in all the times of life, he is calling out to everyone to stand in awe, and ultimately it's guiding us in that awe to fear him and then receive his forgiveness through Christ. And for you believers, whether you're contemplating the whole new year that is upon us or just thinking about today, the constant ticking and ticking of that clock that brings not only the next unknown God-ordained challenge to your life, but each passing hour of time closer to seeing him face to face in all his glory. And that actually is a truly, truly loving Oh, Father, we thank you that we can say there is no darkness in you. You are only good. And we put that together with your sovereignty, and we trust in that. And so we know that when we have the good times or the bad times, we know that all the times are under your control. And yet you call to us to come to the throne of grace, to come for forgiveness, to come to the cross for forgiveness, to receive you and believe on you. So Lord, let these times of life scream at us, especially those who are not believers, and say, God is in control. God is sovereign. But God is only good. So I will trust in that. I will trust in that. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not then graciously give us everything that we need if we trust in him, if we follow him, receive him, and become believers? God, you are good. Let this year, the year 2018, let it be the time that Paul pleaded for. Now is the day of salvation. Show your glory in the salvation that you bring to those who are yours. And glorify yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.